Mark Moss, founder of Market Disruptors and nationally syndicated radio host. Welcome to Real Vision. Yeah, thanks so much, Ash. I'm so excited to be here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. We were talking a little bit offline uh, about your background. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are today. Wow, man, the the super high level view is um, I, I got I got uh, I got lucky. I had good friends. I had a good network. And when I was 18 years old, um, I started buying uh, foreclosed homes from the banks, fixing them up and selling them at 18. I didn't know anything about it, but my friend did. And uh, that became the life of an investor slash entrepreneur, went on to fix and flip over 150 homes, developed $25 million in real estate, had multiple businesses. I started uh, investing into these crazy things called uh, internet stocks in the late 90s. My roommate quit his job and we're like day trading these like internet stock things. After the dot-com boom uh, and then the dot-com crash in 2001, I had this bright, bright idea that I would start an e-commerce business, which wasn't easy at the time. Um, I spent all this money, built this website, and I went and I tried to get brands to let me sell their products on my website. And they laughed at me and told me nobody would ever buy anything online. That was ridiculous. Uh, so I've lived through that. Um, I ended up building up an e-commerce business. I have a Fortune 500 exit there. Um, and so I've just kind of been this entrepreneur investor. Um, in 2008, I got my butt kicked in the great financial crash. Um, I forgot. I didn't. I guess I didn't understand one of the main rules of investing, which is it's probably not a good idea to have all your money into one single asset class, which is Southern California real estate, which I did. Um, and then that caused me to go, wait a minute, like I'm really good at making money, but what the heck is this financial system that I haven't quite figured out? And so I started learning more about you know, the Federal Reserve and the way the financial system works. Um, I kind of became a gold bug. I figured sound money was the way to go. And as I started uh, moving along with this gold bug, I started kind of really um, pursuing this kind of freedom mindset. I kind of learned like, just like I didn't want all my money into one stock or one asset class, why do I want my whole life into one country, right? And so then I started thinking about you know international diversification. I was in the process in 2015 of setting up a offshore trust and bank account in Panama so I could start to work on residency and a passport eventually. Um, and I took another look at Bitcoin. And I said, wow, it's actually, it's the same thing. It's a way for me to get my money out of the banking system. And so I just bought Bitcoin instead. Um, and once I started to learn more about it, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, this is the tool that we have. Like, we, we finally have a chance to win now. and We can do this. And so at that point, I decided I have to tell everybody I know about it. And so I have. And so I started writing <clears throat> from 2016 to 2019. I wrote maybe arguably one of the biggest cryptocurrency research newsletters that was out there for, for four years, published over a thousand pages of research. Um, and uh, I've just been talking about it ever since now on YouTube, uh, now on iHeartRadio and, uh, and here with you today. You said something to me off camera that I thought was very insightful and a statement that I definitely agree with this notion that solutions come from problems. In your view, Mark, tell us what are the problems we face today? Yeah, that's that's such a great that's such such a great point. I mean, solutions are supposed to come to problems today with the Federal Reserve printing, you know, trillions of dollars. We have money trying to find solutions that don't need to be solved. But I would say if we really take a step back, I think it's really simple. There's just really one main problem. And I would say that one main problem is uh, endless money supply. Um, it's, it's the money printer. And I think I look at it like um, if we had like this giant oak tree with like 10,000 leaves and every leaf on that tree is a problem. So, you know, income inequality or supply chains breaking down or uh, censorship, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there's a lots of problems up there, obviously. At the base of that tree, at the root, I think it all is the money printer. 
And so uh, money is supposed to be communication, and that communication helps to coordinate the world, helps to coordinate economies. And when you just continue to print more of it, it distorts everything, and every area of life becomes distorted um, and causes uh, all these problems. So that endless money printer is a big problem, and regardless of where you sit on a lot of these issues that are that are hot today, um, you know, pro or pro or con mandates or pro or con lockdowns or pro whatever it may be it's all because of the money printer if they didn't have the money printer we wouldn't have those problems we wouldn't have people um, getting paid not to work and then we have supply chain issues because of it and so it all trickles down to that so that's a big problem i would say another big problem that we have today is censorship and not just censorship in the ability to not say what i want on facebook or youtube um, even censorship in my ability to hold my own wealth and so uh, right now I can hold my money in the bank in dollars, um, but then the central bank can create more of those dollars, which is then stealing the value from my money. But even more importantly, they can censor the way I can use that money or spend that money. So a good example is just recently, I think about a month ago, uh, PayPal teamed up with the Anti-Defamation League and the Anti-Defamation League was going to put out a list of all the people they thought shouldn't get funding. I don't know why they get to choose, but they did. And so PayPal is going to block all transactions to those people. Now they're going to share that list with other people. So I'm, I'm censored in even my ability to use my money if I want to support you know, a candidate that they deem not, uh, not to be good. Uh, and then the third biggest problem that I think we have today, which again, all goes back to the money printer. Um, but we've gone from a system uh, of ruled by law. So the constitution of the United States was a, was a, a rule of law that's supposed to be pretty easy to understand and so that everybody understands the law. And more importantly, it's supposed to be set in stone. And the reason why is because then I can plan my life based off of those laws and you can plan your life based off those laws. But today we're not ruled by law. We're ruled by men who are constantly changing the rules on us all the time. And literally, uh, we were talking offline, like I'm, I'm in Puerto Rico right now. I was thinking about going back to California where I'm from, but like, I literally don't know what Gavin Newsom will have the laws be next month. I literally don't know that. Uh, my sister's a ER doctor and she was forced out of her job there a few weeks ago. So she was working on setting up a private practice, um, but now they changed the laws there and now she can't set up a private practice. So she's like, well, I, what state should I move to? I don't know what the laws are gonna be next month. And so uh, the world can't work like that. Uh, the world requires long-term decisions, long-term capital deployment. Um, and so those are three really big problems that I see in the world today. Yeah. And you also mentioned, we've been talking about this offline. It's something that if people follow your YouTube channel or your radio show, uh, you talk about a lot, uh, which is this notion of cyclicality as you see it, uh, you see these changing cycles, give us a little bit of a sketch of what that means to you. Yeah, you know, I've uh, going back to school, like my favorite subject was history. And so I just I love looking at history. And I think that um, history is so important to understand how we got to where we are today. Uh, but I also believe that it can also help us to understand kind of what that what the future holds. And so I've done a lot of work on cycles. Um, and there's cycles, uh, all different size cycles and all different types of markets. Um, and when you're looking at any market, if you're looking at, you know, the financial market, for example, you're using different indicators to try to understand what could happen. Hopefully they're, they're leading indicators. And the, the thing with indicators is, you know, they can be good, but they're not, you know, that powerful, especially when you're just looking at one or two. And so you're trying to look at multiple indicators um, to get a better picture. And so when you start looking at these cycles, you need to start looking at them from different areas of the world. And I think that's kind of what helps, you know, 
humans think that progress is like linear, um, one step, and maybe linear goes up a little bit, but really progress is exponential. But while progress is happening exponentially, things are then repeating. And so um, this big thesis that I've kind of been talking about and put together basically looks at like these political, social, cultural cycles, how they just continually repeat. Um, then there's um, those work on like a 250 year time frame. Um, then we have uh, technological revolution cycles that work on about a 50-year time frame. And I'm not talking about new technologies like an iPhone or Uber. I'm talking about technological revolutions that change humanity. Um, and then we have like a financial revolution cycle that works on like an 80-year time frame. And what's interesting is right now we're at a point in history where all three of those happen to be converging at the same time. And I think it's important to understand that because uh, it's pretty easy to look at the financial markets, which most of us are focused on, and we can see that they're ready for a reset. So, um, you know, interest rates are at zero or negative in most parts of the world. Debts are at, you know, astronomical heights. Um, where do you go, right? Uh, we can see that uh, kind of like, uh, like a board game, if we were out of moves, what comes next? You have to reset the game. And so we can see uh, on an 80 year time frame, 80 years ago, we had the Bretton Woods Agreement. So the whole world went on to a gold standard, right? Uh, based off the dollar. Um, and today, 80 years later, we have the IMF is calling for a Bretton Woods II. Okay, so we can see that. Um, and so a lot of people are speculating, you know, will the dollar die? Will the dollar remain res reserve currency? Uh, will China take over? Could it be the yuan or could it be a digital yuan? Could it be an SDR basket? Could, it, could we go back to gold, right? And so there's all these, these things thrown around. And I think um, if you only look at the financial piece, you could get lost in trying to figure that out. But if you understand the other two cycles, I think it becomes a lot more clear. So when you see these three cycles converging in your view, political, technical, and financial, uh, what are some of the manifestations of that? In other words, what are the things that you observe that give you uh, the sense that this is at a point where there's an inflection? Yeah. So um, if we start, uh, it really where it starts is the political, social, cultural, because that's where all the problems come. Then the technological solves the problems there. And then technological revolutions drive financial markets. So they, they, they go into each other. Right. So um, if we start with the with the first one, the political, social, cultural, um, just looking at some high level ones. So there's like these 84 year populist uprising or regime change cycles. So about every 84 years, we see this regime changes, populist uprising. So just a couple of um, quick examples would be 84 years ago was the end of World War II, uh, Hitler, Mussolini. And in the U.S. was uh, FDR's New Deal, which kind of changed the U.S. into kind of like a socialist type nation. 84 years before that was uh the Communist Manifesto was written. Karl Marx wrote that and led to the European Spring, the largest revolution in European history. So that's on 84 years. Three times 84 equals 252. So on every 250 years, we have this revolution cycle. So 250 years ago from now was the American Revolution, the French Revolution. 250 years before that was the Protestant Reformation. Now, what's important to understand about those is that both, what both of those represented were the people were pushing back on centralization or globalization and moving towards decentralization. So the Protestant Reformation was kind of rejecting the church and the, and the state together. Um, they said that the only way to God was through the church and um, that was a centralized path. And then with the printing press, we got the decentralized information and they found, no, we, could, we can push back against that. We can have our own decentralized approach. Um, obviously, the uh, the American French Revolution is pretty evident, uh, pushing back against the centralization of the of the monarchy, and they created a decentralized government. The United States Constitution set up a decentralized government, 
Um, and so I think when you understand that, and we could go back to the beginning of time, it's always the same thing where governments get too oppressive, they push too hard, and then the people push back, they revolt, and then we have freedom, and then we go back to oppression, revolution, freedom, and, and it just kind of repeats over and over and over. And I think anybody that's paying halfway attention today can see that we're at about peak globalization. I mean, everything is globalized now. We have you know World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization and the World Meteorological Association and the UN and the IMF, et cetera. Um, and so we can see that we're like peak centralization, but at the same time, we can see that all around the world, people are pushing back on that. And so we're having these uprisings, these populism uprisings happening all over the world at the same time. And so I think uh, it's pretty evident to see that we're kind of coming to a head at that right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your view of Bitcoin and how it fits in here. Give us a sense of how decentralization uh, applies as you see the world in the domain of Bitcoin. Yeah, so so that's a great question, which brings us to the second cycle. Um, and so um, if solutions come to problems, well, the problem is the centralization, too much centralization, too much globalization. That's what the people are rejecting. Um, and so if they want to reject that to go to decentralization, like they did when the United States was founded, um, what's interesting is that at the exact same time that that 250-year revolution cycle is happening, we have a technological revolution happening. Um, and just real quickly to run you through those, about every 50 years, we had in the 1700s was the Industrial Revolution that changed humanity, brought people from farms into now um, cities and factories. Um, about 50 years later, we had the age of steam engines. So we had manpower and horsepower for all the you know humanity. And now we have steam engines and we had steel, which allowed us to build skyscrapers and bridges, changed humanity. About 50 years later, we had electricity. At the time, it was just like a digital candle. Why do we need a digital candle? Candles have worked good for 5,000 years. Well, electricity was much bigger than just a digital candle, obviously. Uh, about 50 years later, we had the age of oil, um, automobiles, and, uh, and uh, mass production. And for all of humanity, people walked and rode horses, and that was it. And now we had cars, and we could trucks, and we could transport things and, and, and whatnot. Uh, about 50 years later, 1971, we had the age of the microprocessor, which brought personal computers, telecommunications. The internet allows us to do what we're doing right here. And then 1971 plus 50 years puts us where we are today, which is a decentralized revolution. And so what's interesting is at the same time the world is pushing back on centralization and globalization, the technological revolution is giving us exactly what we need, which is decentralized technology. Well, you know, you said something there that I thought was really interesting. You talked about this idea of electric lighting being uh, at first just a digital version of the candle. And it's sort of easy to see uh, how someone, uh, as the U.S. was becoming electrified, uh, could say, well, why do I need this new technology? I've already got a candle. It works pretty well. But yep. implicit in that is this idea that what you're seeing is really the tip of the iceberg of a broader technological change uh, that will be coming into play. In regards to Bitcoin, what do you see some of those future changes being and how will it change the nature of society and the economy? Yeah. So, I mean, th those are those are great questions that humans have a hard time answering. The reason why is that humans have a hard time imagining the future. All we can really do is imagine a better version of what we have today. So we have cars, we'll have flying cars, right? If we go back to 1995 and we're having this conversation, which I was at that time, um, we we're trying to figure out, well, the internet, it, it's kind of like a way to send digital messages. Yeah, it was. That's what it was then. Uh, it's kind of like a way we can have these digital message boards. 
Yeah, it's that. And we could see in 1995 that maybe one day we'd be buying stuff and selling stuff online. Okay, we could do that. But we had no idea that our cars would be hooked to something called a cloud using something called social media to like navigate us around traffic because we didn't have any of those building blocks. Um, and so that's just kind of a good example. Um, what we can see with Bitcoin is they say today it's, it's like digital cash. Okay, yeah, sure. It's like that. Is it like digital gold? Sure, it's like that. It's like a Swiss bank account in your pocket. Yeah, it's kind of like that too. But it gives us this platform now that so much more can be built off of it. And I believe it can change humanity just like the other technological technological revolutions have. And so a couple things that we can see, and I don't know how big this will change humanity, but a couple things that we can see is if we think about one of the oldest problems that we've had as humans has been securing our wealth. So since the beginning of time, uh, you may come kill me and take my chickens. So you and I band together and now someone may come take our chickens and our goats. So we make a village and then we make a kingdom and then we make a country and we're always trying to store this. We have to build up uh, defenses and militaries and vaults and safes and spend enormous resources to protect our resources. Um, but what if I can store my wealth in a way that costs no money I need no resources to secure it, and nobody can steal it from me. Well, I'm not exactly sure how that changes the future, but it's big. It's really big. And I can just give you an example. So, for example, uh, Charlie Munger says, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. So if we can change the incentive structure, how does society change? An extreme example would be if we went to Africa, we're in the Congo, and there's a, a warlord there. And he knows that anytime he wants, he can just go steal from the people. And then he'll go build his mansions and whatever he does. Well, two things are happening in that environment. One, the person knows, the people know that there's no reason why they should be saving any money uh, or planning for their future because at any moment it could be stolen, taken away from them. The warlord also knows that anytime he wants, he can just go steal the money. But what if we change that power balance structure and we change that incentive structure? So now the people can store their wealth cryptographically in a way that can't be stolen. Well, a couple of things happen. One, the people now can plan for their future. They can save. They can start to think long term. The warlord also now realizes that he can't just steal the wealth. So now he's incentivized to actually provide value in exchange. Now that's an extreme example, but of course you can think of that in context of your government today who has just continued to steal your wealth through inflation and also continue to, you know, be more uh we'll say oppressive. But what happens when that power balance shifts a little bit and now the government may be forced to look at their people more as a customer and maybe I should be actually providing value to them instead. Uh, there's a great book I have it on my desk right here, The Sovereign Individual, and this kind of outlines uh, some of that. But just imagine how the world would be different if governments were more focused on providing value to the people in exchange for value as opposed to stealing it. And I think the implications of that are massive. Yeah. You mentioned The Sovereign Individual, a uh, book by Del Davidson uh, that is very popular in the Bitcoin community. Give us a sense for people who haven't read it, what that book is about and why it's so significant in the Bitcoin community. Yeah, so the book was written in 1997, I believe, which was amazing because it was kind of pre-internet. I mean, the internet was just getting started, but unless you were around back then, I mean, it was barely getting started back then. And so um, it was amazing they wrote it back then because it was uh, somewhat prophetic for kind of where we're at today. And basically what they make the case for is being a sovereign individual. And they kind of compare it to, um, in the world, the world's two thirds water, and we have international waters. So you get out past a certain distance, and then it's just international waters where you're like, nobody controls you out there. 
And they kind of liken that to the internet where the internet is almost like international waters. And so the internet has allowed us to now kind of get into this international space um, which allows us to do kind of what we're doing today. I mean, I'm going back between California and Puerto Rico and my business comes with me because of the internet. And what's interesting when you think about it in those terms today is like, it's weird to think that like a country could own you. Like, how does a country own me? Like I could just be anywhere in the world. I'm in El Salvador or Nicaragua. I'm in Mexico. And so that's kind of what they're talking about, how the power structure changes as the internet um, kind of connects the world, but even more importantly, how the giant nation state becomes obsolete. Um, they were, the nation state was important at a time, especially when trade was happening and you know protecting ports and using tariffs and whatnot. But today, because of what the internet has done, it's become a little bit less relevant. And one uh, kind of analogy they give is that, um, you know, the state looks at you as like a dairy cow in a pen that they can just do whatever they want with. But what if, uh, the internet has given us the ability to grow wings and now go to the jurisdiction that we're treated best. And so um, I think that's kind of the picture that they paint of the world. And it's one that I, I tend to agree with. Yeah, I should probably add, uh, in addition to uh, in addition to uh, James Dale Davidson, also William Rees Mogg, a co-author of The Sovereign Individual, the late uh, British journalist William Rees Mogg. Uh, so, so this is an interesting point that you make here. You're you're really discussing a, a change in framework uh, for the way that nation states uh, and individuals can interact. What do you think that world might look like, and how, in your view, would it be beneficial? Yeah, so I think it's uh, I think it's kind of evident actually if you understand it. So, um, like I just said, even just in that example, if you shift the balance of power and you change the incentive structure, how things change. So, for example, uh, a perfect example is uh, I'm in Puerto Rico. Last week, I had to leave my home because electricity was out. Uh, Eight hundred thousand people on the island were without power, and I had to go to the city where there was some power. Um, I was talking about this, and several people commented online um, and said, "Oh, um, the government just needs to centralize it and take it over." But I'm like, "No, that's not the problem. Um, the problem is the, the centralization of the government. Imagine if there was private electricity companies on the island, and they were competing against each other. They would both be competing to give me a better product at a better price." and with better service. And so, for example, if uh, they would both be trying to bring the prices down, they'd try to become more efficient, they would try to get cleaner energy, right? And then they would make sure that I had perfect uptime because if my energy went down like it did last week, I would leave and go to my competitor. And so it's through that competition that we always will get better products, better service, and better prices. And of course, everybody wants that. And so um, I believe, you know, we can see the world is trending towards this totalitarianism or authoritarianism um, again, the centralization. Um, and and what breaks that trend? The governments aren't just going to wake up one day and say, let's just give more freedom back. I believe what breaks that trend is competition when states are forced to compete for people as per that narrative. And so I think it's just easy for anybody to realize that um, when people compete, there is better products, better service, and better pricing. One. We were talking a little bit offline about technological revolutions more broadly. Uh, in your view, how do technological revolutions generally play out and what does it tell us potentially about the future of Bitcoin? 
Yeah. So what's interesting about these um, technological revolutions is that they they typically follow this kind of repeatable pattern. Um, and so if we just go back and look at just a couple real quick, we can look at the automobile boom. Um, and so what happened is uh, after a few automobiles were um, produced, everyone got excited. The speculators, the investors came in and very quickly there was about 250 automobile manufacturers. The problem was two two big problems. One, there was no market. So there wasn't people to buy all those cars. And the second one is there was really no infrastructure, no roads, no gas stations, no parts providers, service stations, et cetera. And so the 250 automobiles went bankrupt. Um, we had three that kind of um, succeeded, Ford, GM, Chrysler. And then, of course, today we have lots of automobiles. If we look at the internet boom, we kind of see the same thing. Um, the first WW went live in 1990. In 1995, we had the first IPO with Netscape, which brought all this money in, which quickly exploded the market. So by 99, we had the famous, you know, pets.com and the webvan.com, et cetera. They weren't wrong, but they had the same two problems. One, the market wasn't there. By the year 2000, I think less than 10% of people had ever bought anything online. The second problem was the internet was too slow. The infrastructure wasn't there. Now today, I would, I would guess most pet products are probably bought online, but at that time it was just too early. So again, they all went bankrupt. Um, some of that technology got absorbed by the big guys and it, and it grew. And I think when you understand it from that lens and you look at Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, you can see the same thing. And so what do I mean by that is that, well, Bitcoin happened and it created this new decentralized technology. Um, then we had a couple ICOs that happened, which were kind of like the IPOs of the past, which brought in all the speculation, which brought in all the investment capital. And then the same thing happened. It quickly grew into thousands and thousands and thousands of cryptocurrencies that were all trying to solve all these things, um, supply chain management and tickets on the blockchain and you know, all these things. But I think it's the same two problems. One, you didn't have the market for it. Nobody needed those. There was no market to buy those things. And two, we didn't have the infrastructure for that. And so I think what we're seeing is kind of the same thing happen where uh, all these projects that have gone and created their, their blockchains uh, will probably be on the main blockchain at the end. And, and an example of that is in that internet boom, we saw all these Fortune 500 companies go and start these private intranets. Oh, we can't trust the internet. Um, so they spent billions of dollars to build intranets, but they all went away. Everyone's on the internet today. And so what we're seeing happening now is the technology on Bitcoin has caught up to a point that I think most people aren't really aware. And so that's a good point to bring up. And so technology, just like the internet, scales in layers. And so we have the TCIP and that was a good, you know, it was, it was good. It was kind of slow and dumb, which is important because to have progress, you need to have the most attempts. And so if my base layer was very smart, then I can do less things on it. But when it's slow and basic, then I have more attempts. And so then it's like, well, we want, we want to send email. Okay, well, let's add SMTP. Oh, but we also want to secure our websites. Great, let's add HTTPS. And so we can add those layers. And so what we're seeing happen on Bitcoin today is we've kept the base layer, let's call it slow and basic, but we're adding technology on layers. And so today, I mean, just this year, we've seen with layer two with lightning, massive, massive improvements. And so now we're able to send money faster, cheaper, and more private than any other cryptocurrency out there. Um, so all those ones that were going after faster, cheaper, more private, they're kind of somewhat irrelevant today. Uh, we can see that now there's smart contracts happening on layer two. So then all the smart contract platforms um, you know, are threatened with that. But what's even more important, and this is where people are missing it, I think, kind of back to the question or the point you had 
kind of picked up on earlier about the electric light bulbs. Um, electricity was like an electric light or electric candle, but it became more. And so Bitcoin is like digital cash. It is like digital gold. But today, the Bitcoin network itself is way more. So for an example, I was in Dallas about a month ago at BitBlock Boom, and they had a hackathon happening. And the winner of the hackathon created a phone that can call over the Bitcoin network. What? I can, I can make phone calls over the Bitcoin network? Censorship resistant? It's bigger than that. There's now, there's a, a couple platforms that are out now that are for communities, for people like myself, podcasters. And I can put my podcast or my videos in there. My community can chat within that community amongst themselves. And what's interesting is as they're streaming my content down, they can also stream money to me up at the same time. Now, um, I used to have a wall full of uh, DVDs and CDs. I don't anymore. Everything's streamed today. So now we can stream money on Bitcoin. Now, I don't know exactly how that changes the world, but I know it's going to be massive. So in this community, they can stream my content. They can stream me money. They can chat within them amongst themselves. But when they're chatting, it's happening over the Bitcoin network, peer to peer, not going through WhatsApp or Telegram, no censorship resistant. Uh, it is censorship resistant right on Bitcoin. So we're starting to see all these new technologies come up and it's going to make bigger uh, Bitcoin bigger than most people could even imagine. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the Lightning Network, the L2 payment network. This is something that's getting a lot of buzz. People in the Bitcoin community very excited about it. What do you see the significance of the Lightning Network being? Well, there's um, a couple things. So the first thing I would say that really makes it significant is it shows that um, technology scales in layers. And so we don't need to do everything on the base layer because what happens is there's always going to be trade-offs that happen. And so what we want is we want the base layer to be decentralized and censorship resistant. That's the main thing. So we've traded speed. So the Bitcoin network is slow. The base layer is slow because we have decentralization and uh, security. Other, other, other blockchains have sacrificed those things to get more speed. But now what we've been able to do is using layer two with Lightning, we're able to, it's not as secure, but it's fast. And so now it's perfect for micropayments. So I was in El Salvador recently and I was down there buying my coffee and buying a water at the bodega using the Lightning Network. And literally they can just punch it in on their POS system. It shows a barcode, a QR code. I, I scan it. it. It pulls up an invoice. So it already has the amount that I have to pay. I literally hit the button and in, in, in a split second, they have the payment. Um, it costs about one Satoshi, <clears throat> one sat to do that. So it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny. And so it's amazing. Now it's not as secure. It's not as censorship resistant, but I don't need it to be, right? If I'm gonna send a million dollars, I want that censorship resistant. If I'm buying a cup of coffee, I don't need that permanently put onto the blockchain for all of eternity. So you've sacrificed some of it for the speed um, so that's the first thing. It shows how we're scaling in layers. The second thing I think that's very significant is we're starting to be able to find out that it's useful for other types of things. Um, and really it comes down to what we are just transferring value. Um, and so what's, what keeps Bitcoin decentralized is that I can run a node. So the, the database of Bitcoin is only about 300 gigabytes. Um, because the block sizes were kept small. That's what happened in the block size wars in 2017. And so the database is about 300 gigs and I can hold it, I can run it on a device smaller than this. Um, and so I do, I run a node in California, I run a node in uh, Puerto Rico and lots of other people do as well. And now those nodes are also running Lightning Network. And so they're starting to find 
additional ways to use the Lightning Network in this decentralized fashion. And um, like I said, I don't know exactly what the future holds, but what we're already seeing is showing amazing things. You know, one of the things that we touched on uh, earlier in the conversation uh, is this notion of an, an almost kind of a psychological uh, or philosophical civil war in the space now uh, between Bitcoiners uh, and uh, some of the other protocols or people who advocate uh, for a proliferation of protocols. I don't want to sort of evaluate it or give my opinion here, but give us a sense of how you think about that debate uh, between Bitcoiners and some other protocols in the space. Well, I would say from an ideological standpoint, I would say the big divide there is what you're focusing on. So um, what may be considered like the Bitcoin maximalists, for example, um, they're typically focused on trying to change the world. Like literally, if we can take away the money printer, we fix the money, we fix the world. Um, F.A. Hayek, uh, one of my favorite economists, he said back in the 80s, he's a Nobel Prize winner for, um, you know, economists. He said in the 80s that there shall never be another sound money again until the thing is taken from the hands of the government. But it can't be done by force, but rather a sly roundabout way introducing something they can't stop. So kind of like almost prophetically talking about Bitcoin and how it was introduced a decade ago and now it can't be stopped. Um, and so I think the most of the Bitcoin maximalists are focused on, you know, freedom, are, t are focused on, you know, taking away that power getting this, this decentralized system in place, um, like I said, that can fix the money and fix the world. Um, I think most of the uh, altcoin people are really focused on how much dollars they can make. And so typically the first thing I see is, what do you mean Cardano or Ethereum's a scam? I made this much money. Okay, that's great. And so as an investor, if that's what you're focused on, then you know some of these altcoins could go up faster in it depends on what time frame you're looking at. Um, but I just think that's probably the big ideological divide. Um, some people are trying to literally save the world, and some people are just trying to make more u s dollars. If that makes sense? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting perspective. I know people who uh, are on the Ethereum side would probably disagree and have some uh, uh, their own view of it and to uh, probably explain it from their perspective. But I'm curious a little bit uh, to hear about what your view of the future is and how you actually see this playing out. Yeah. So I think um, I, I was kind of talking earlier. I mean, and if we look at Ethereum and, and Bitcoin, for example, if, if you understand those three biggest problems and, and maybe Everyone doesn't see those same problems. But for me, I do. I think a lot of people do. Remember, again, the, the unlimited money printer, um, the censorship, and the ever-changing law, the rule by men. So, um, for example, just you, you brought up Ethereum. So one of the big things uh, with uh, Bitcoin versus Ethereum is that Bitcoin has a fixed supply cap of $21 million, which solves the problem of this unlimited money supply, whereas um, Ethereum didn't. Ethereum didn't have a monetary policy like that. Well, I think it's been a few months now where Vitalik and the boys got together and they put together a new protocol to change the monetary issuance of, of Ethereum. Hey, look, now we, have, now we have it, right? But the very fact that people can get together and can change that is the problem that we're trying to get rid of. Remember, we need a mutable law that's there that I can plan my life on. How can I plan my life on a protocol that could just be changed? So I think that's just one thing that I would say. Um, you know, we're t Ethereum is going to be the computer of the world, supposedly, and all these applications will be built on it. Potentially, you know, trillion dollar businesses, companies like Facebook could be built on Ethereum. But how could they plan that if they're just going to change the protocol on them? So that's going to be a big problem. So that'd be one thing I'd say. But, um, you know, 
we will i guess time will tell at this point i think uh i think i think we'll see but for me i think like trying to just focus on those problems and i think uh over a long enough time period we'll see we'll see how that plays out but how the world progresses either way um, whichever protocol ends up winning um i think i think it's i think it's pretty profound i think a couple things will happen from this first of all um before the internet I think the way that we looked at information was typically I got my morning newspaper and I had my evening news and that was kind of it. But today information has become decentralized. And so today I might see a kid post a picture on the beach in Thailand and I know what the weather's like. I know what the waves are like. I, and I have all this additional information being put together by somebody across the world. And so the way that we look at information is different today. And I think the way that we'll look at value is also going to change. So today we typically might consider it just money, um, but I think value is going to be transferred and changed a lot. Um, the other thing I think that is is going to happen, in, in my view, is that we're at this dangerous point today where technology, you know, being a tool can really help us out. Like I wanted as a kid, I watched the Jetsons and I wanted a robot to clean my house and to talk to my house and have it do everything. But today I'm afraid that, you know, Amazon might be spying on me and sending my data to somebody else. I um, mean, so the the technology has kind of become this tool or the, and, and it could be a weapon. Uh, we have, you know, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but then we have central bank digital currencies now. And those are, you know, programmable money that they could use to program like, hey, you can spend this much um, your stimulus by Friday. If you don't spend it, it comes back to us. It could also be used for behavioral modification. Like, hey, Ash, you're you're saving too much. So you have negative interest rates. And Mark, I'm not saving enough, so I get positive. And so there's things that we can do with that. And so it's a tool. And I think, you know, with AI and central bank digital currencies and all these things happening, um, the world's kind of going into this scary place where they could use technology to really kind of create this, you know, tight reign over the people. Um, but at the same time, we have Bitcoin, which could decentralize everything. And so I think we're kind of at this at this inflection point where the world could either break to more decentralization, kind of uh, bring the role of governments down, kind of like the sovereign individual talks about, or we could go back to more authoritarianism. And I have hope that I think that we go to a more decentralized government, uh, smaller governments, uh, more like the United States was founded on, more independent governments, uh, more competition, which means, again, like I said earlier, better service, better products, better prices. I think humanity overall has massive benefits from this. I have a, a huge picture of hope. Um, unfortunately, per like the three evolution cycles, the pendulum is still swinging and maxing out on this peak centralization. Um, probably over the next couple of years, we'll see that starting to swing back. And, um, you know, the next couple of years, it's pretty evident to see are probably going to be pretty difficult, the financial systems and the supply chain issues that we have and whatnot. Um, but I believe that this gets cleared up. And I believe that probably over the next couple of years, the pendulum starts swinging back. By the end of the decade, I would expect to see um, smaller governments, uh, more competition. And I think on the other side of that is, is massive hope and prosperity, uh, which I'm excited for because I have kids. I want my kids to have a better world. I want my grandkids to have a better world. And I think this decentralized revolution is the answer for that. Mark, always good to end on a positive note, an intriguing premise, a provocative thesis. Thank you so much for joining us on Real Vision. Yeah, thanks so much, Ash. Hey, 
Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.